The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. John 18, beginning at 1 through 14. And these words referred to in the first verse are that prayer of Jesus in chapter 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. When Jesus, then Jesus, knowing, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, and I'm going to say it as the Greek would simply say it, because the English doesn't do it full justice. Jesus said to them, I am. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup? that the Father has given me. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. This is God's word. Father, let us see beneath familiar things and hear a message to understand Christ in this critical hour for our benefit. We ask in his name. Amen. We all have certainly viewed scenes on the evening news at one time or another, in fact, nearly every night. A scene that shows a prisoner being moved perhaps from a police van into a courtroom or into a police station or out of those facilities back into the vehicle. And obviously, here's someone under arrest, uh, accused of a crime, perhaps going to or from their trial. And the individual being conducted back and forth might take a paper or a book and hold it up against his face so the camera can't capture him, or might take his jacket and 
pull it over his head so that people won't see him. Why? He's ashamed. He doesn't want to be there. This is not his idea of a joyous day. And he is out of control of all the circumstances upon him. He's helplessly being led by the arm or maybe even manacled to a deputy, unable to determine anything about his own circumstances in that particular moment. Now, in the first century, we know that death by crucifixion was the lowliest and most terrifying fate for any criminal. In places today where uh, capital punishment is still practiced, not very often in our country, as you know, we seek to execute a person by the most merciful way, the least pain-filled, quickest way. I think you know that crucifixion does not fall into that kind of category. In fact, it was exactly the opposite. It was designed and developed to afford the maximum of pain and suffering and to draw out the dying process as long as possible. And besides that, not only was the physical situation of crucifixion a horrifying thing to consider, but the shameful situation that it placed you in, in society. Crucifixion usually happened to several classes of people, slaves, violent felons who had taken other lives, perhaps captives of some military battle who the general wanted to particularly humiliate. So it was unimaginable if anyone would contemplate crucifixion as a fate coming their way that they would voluntarily submit to have this happen to them. They would fight it, try to escape it in any possible way that they could. They would never volunteer. But here is Jesus surrendering to his captors, going to the place where Judas knew he would be, not in any way trying to dodge or, or get away or escape the city. And yet we read of him here willingly embracing this crisis and in control of what is going on, basically as if he was orchestrating every detail as it unfolded. The victim was the one in charge. And we need to consider this as we look at that long-ago night and what it means to us. We know the Apostle John was the last to write of the four Gospels, quite a while after the others, as a matter of fact, possibly as much as 20 years, but certainly a good time, more than a decade, after the other three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, had written. And and you know, perhaps, that John is the most distinctive gospel. It has more material that the others don't have, and it omits things that the others do have. And that's not because John didn't know what he was doing. The Holy Spirit was moving him to emphasize certain things and bring out certain things that he witnessed, and he was aware that people had read the other gospels and thought, there isn't such a need for me to just say the same things the same way. He was writing to complement or supplement. It's remarkable that they come to this garden. The word Gethsemane is not given in John as it is in the other Gospels. We have no account here in John of the wrestling in prayer three times. You know, Father, please, can this cup be taken? Is there another way? 
yet not my will but yours be done. You know how prominent that is in the other Gospels. Not even mentioned here. And yet John certainly wouldn't deny that it happened. He gives us instead the long prayer of chapter 17 that the other Gospels don't have. And it's only John that tells us about the soldiers, which we're going to emphasize in a minute, falling down in awe and amazement before Jesus as they confront him. And it's only John that names Peter as the one who drew the sword and names the man who was wounded, Malchus, as if to say, well, if you want to know if this is true, go check it out. You can ask the man whom it says by Luke, by the way, Luke tells us that his ear was healed. John doesn't mention that. Here we have John's account of of a supplementary emphasis showing primarily the more divine emphasis of Jesus as the supreme master of circumstances going on here. He is not mastered by circumstances. He's in control. He's aware of a plan of his Father that he is acting out so that he could come. And it is John that contains the great word from the cross, the last gasp of Jesus. Was the word finished? I've finished it. It wasn't, oh, cut off before my prime or something. No, complete. I have done what I was sent to do. And it is done in every part. No one can say that this sin-bearing Lamb of God was dying in a way that he should have chosen or might have chosen to avoid. Perhaps on this first Sunday of a new year, there are those among us or those hearing who are facing some kind of suffering, pretty intense suffering, physical, emotional, suffering of grief, suffering of disappointment, suffering of obstacles in your life, in your career, your finances, your education, something happening that seems unjust to you and you're questioning whether God knows what's going on. I would put before you on this New Year's Sunday, him who endured suffering at such a high level intensity that you cannot even imagine, nor will you ever duplicate. And yet he did so willingly, and more than that, did it all on your behalf. As a first point arising from this text, I think verses 2 to 4 here tell us a reminder of all that Jesus knew. A reminder of all that Jesus knew. Notice how verse 2 says Judas, the traitor, knew where to find Jesus. He had been to Gethsemane. They had evidently spent time there as maybe a campsite, a place to teach. It was secluded. It was private, just outside the city, a short walk from Jerusalem. Some of you have visited. You can see that place today looking very much as it probably did. Of all the things that are changed in Jerusalem, the Mount of Olives is very much the same. There are olive trees there that are hundreds of years old, they tell us. And Judas knew this was a place where Jesus and his disciples would likely go to spend the night on that Passover week when the city was crowded. They didn't have a lodging or a place inside to stay. Judas knew where he was to be found. And of course, he'd already been financially rewarded for that knowledge. Today, of course, there are scientists and educators 
people of great skill and renown who receive Nobel Prizes, financial rewards going into the hundreds of thousands of dollars for research they've done or accomplishments in their field of knowledge. Their knowledge is a positive knowledge that does mankind good of some kind or other, and they're rewarded for it. Well, here's Judas not getting a Nobel Prize, but getting, we read elsewhere, 30 pieces of silver. You can check out. There are a little bit of differing ideas of what the 30 pieces of silver were worth. Part of that problem is we don't know what coin exactly must have been used. There were a couple of possibilities for what the coin could have been. But we think that the buying power of what Judas received for his knowledge of being able to conduct soldiers there to arrest Jesus was at the most, in today's buying power, three or $4,000. Now, there's not any of us that wouldn't mind another three or $4,000. But would you sell your soul for it? Judas did. The little paltry bit of knowledge he had bought him enough perhaps to live for a month or two. But that's all. And he could not and would not live forever. Now, you contrast this limited, small, rewarded, worldly knowledge of Judas against the knowledge of Jesus here, the omniscience, the all-knowledge of Jesus. We're told in verse 4, he knew all things that would happen to him comprehensively. He knew what Judas knew, and yet he didn't avoid staying there in the Garden of Gethsemane. He didn't say, men, we can't go to Gethsemane tonight because that's where Judas is going to come. No, he knew Judas was coming there with the soldiers, and he went there. And he knew what was ahead. He knew what the arrest would bring. He knew the number of times the cat of nine tails of the Roman whipmaster would bite flesh, gouge chunks of flesh out of his back. He knew exactly what every lying witness would say in the false trials, the hearings before Annas and Caiaphas and Herod and Pilate. He knew how illegal the whole thing was and every bit of the law that was being violated, laws of the Word of God as well as laws of Rome. He knew every detail. He knew the hour in which each thing would happen. You remember, earlier in his ministry, there were times, and John had pointed out a number of them, when something could have taken place, and Jesus said, no, my hour hasn't come. And so he steered away from that. He said, it it can't happen yet. But we also remember, and if I can remind you of this from a month or more ago, back in November, as we began chapter 17, The very first thing he said in this prayer to his father there is, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. Now it was time for things to unfold. He controlled the timing. And it wasn't anything that held him back from this happening prior to it in the way of particular suffering, as if he was saying, I want to put off that painful ordeal as long as I can. No. There was a timing seen only to God when a horrifying thing had to happen. And that horrifying thing is described both in John and in other Gospels in terms of a cup, a cup of suffering to be accepted from the hand of his Father. To say what this is, you might go to Psalm 75, verse 8. Now, of course, it's not a literal cup. It's not a cup any archaeologist is going to dig up 
but it's described as a vessel of suffering of a most unique kind. Psalm 75, 8 says it is the cup from the hand of the Lord, full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out and the wicked of the earth drink it down to its dregs. Jesus knew he was going to drink that cup. It was the sinner's cup. He was not a sinner, but he was going to drink it because the Scripture said he must become sin and be sin on our behalf as the substitutionary atonement of God so that we could be spared from drinking that horrible cup of sinful poison, judgment from God, and we could have his righteousness applied to us. Now, Jesus knew all this. Keep that in mind. As he went to Gethsemane, he knew Judas was coming. He knew the number of soldiers that were coming. He knew what Peter would do. He knew Malchus's ear would be cut off. He knew all of this. And he came and willingly walked into this confrontation. But it's important that we see here what Jesus knew. A second point. After we understand that, we look at the revelation of who Jesus truly was as this text gives it to us in verses 5 to 7. The question comes. This mob, this military mob comes forward. By the way, I'm, I'm unsatisfied with any English translation when it says, I'm not sure really what they could have done better, so I shouldn't act as if I had greater knowledge or something. But it says that uh, Judas procured a band of soldiers. That's way too indefinite. We wish we had a better indication. But the word there in the text is the word cohort. We do know what a cohort of Roman soldiers was. Usually at least five or six hundred. A part of a division, a larger measure. Wow, you say, you mean five or six hundred soldiers came to Jesus? Well, probably not. This might have been a way of speaking like we would say if you had a major traffic accident that, uh, let's say you had the accident that tied up Route 222 here a week or so ago and highways everywhere were messed up. And you'd say, why, all of Mannheim Township and Lancaster police responded. Well, that doesn't mean there were 53 police cars at that traffic accident. It doesn't mean every single officer who worked for those jurisdictions responded, but you were saying there was a massive response. That's probably what is being said here that a large section, at least, of a cohort came. Not ten soldiers. That might be what you've pictured. Uh, you know, a few leaders from the temple, and they said, hey, we better have a few Romans to round this out. Uh, grab a dozen of them. The best wisdom on this, of those that are really expert on these subjects, far more than myself, would say there were at least dozens, if not scores, of soldiers. Why so many? Well, number one, they knew that Jesus had a band of men, and there was more than one to round up. And number two, they knew he was almost impossible to catch because they'd failed to do it other times before. They'd sent people out to get him, and they came back empty-handed and say, he eluded us. So this time it was clear we're going to have him in an isolated place, send a good-sized force. All right, they come. Jesus doesn't skulk in the corner they don't have to go beat the bushes to find him. He steps forward and says, who are you looking for? 
Now, when I read, I read the response that he gave. Jesus said, who do you seek? Their answer was Jesus of Nazareth. Now, it's important what they said there. They gave him his name and his town, which was a despised, obscure place up in the northern provinces. In other words, we're looking for this hick from the country who thinks he's somebody. That's what that really means. They looked down on him as a person of no account and thought, this guy's an impudent upstart. We can stamp him out easily enough. Jesus of Nazareth, a frightened yokel who we expect to capture. And Jesus answered in a particularly distinctive way when he said two words in the Greek, ego, me, I am. He didn't say I am he. He said I am. Now, there was no Roman soldier, I would assume, who studied the Old Testament or knew that this was the name that Moses had received from God when he said, God, who should I tell them sent me when I go down to Pharaoh and say, let my people go? And God said, tell them the one who goes with you is, I am who I am. That's all you need to hear. That's all the description I'm going to give of myself. I am. And that becomes the Old Testament's most ringing grand name for God who doesn't have to present, you know, his photo ID to tell people who he is. I am. Jesus has already used this a number of times, you know, when he said, I am the living water. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. He said all those things in this gospel. So we think it's absolutely consistent here that he answered We're looking for this peasant who thinks he's somebody, and Jesus said, I am. I am. He claimed to be God. And folks, a cohort, at least dozens of Roman soldiers. We had a West Point student in the first service, so I said we could liken these guys to army rangers. I wanted to make sure he got a compliment for the army. But they could have been Navy SEALs. They could have been the Lancaster County SWAT team. It doesn't matter who they were or how well-armed they were or how battle-hardened they were or how good they were at taking down a captive. What does it say? These world-class warriors and Roman soldiers were world-class. Nobody stood in their way in those times. World-class warriors. What does it say? They fell on the ground. What made them do that? This man didn't have a weapon in his hand. He didn't threaten them. They fell to the ground. You can't explain this apart from the supernatural power of God and the supernatural being of Jesus Christ. Somehow, God pulled the curtain back enough for these men to see a little similarity to what Isaiah the prophet saw hundreds of years before when he went into the temple mourning for a dead king of Israel and he saw a vision of God whose train, it says, filled the temple in Isaiah 6 and of the seraphim and cherubim proclaiming, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. Isaiah, aristocrat, prophet, PhD guy. You know, this is no peasant. Isaiah fell on the floor and said, Woe is me, 
for I'm a man of unclean lips. This is a prophet saying he's a man of unclean lips. He believed he was seeing God face to face. This fulfills what Jesus predicted in John 10, saying there, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. Who claims that? I can't claim that. My goodness, authority to lay my life down when I want to? or Well, sure, you could commit suicide, but you can't take it up again. And that's what Jesus predicted. Psalm 27 has an interesting tie-in here that could be seen as prophetic, Psalm 27 too, where the psalmist wrote, when the wicked, even my enemies, come upon me to devour my flesh, they stumbled and fell. Jesus faces the best troops there are, and they were powerless to do anything to him. His majesty as the Son of God put them on their faces. And Augustine, the medieval commentator and theologian, has a pungent comment here. He says, I quote, Is this not what shall happen when he comes the final time as judge of the earth? When all unbelief falls at his feet as if dead? And who, Augustine said, who shall stand when he appears? Indeed, who will stand? Jesus Christ was the actual commanding general in that garden. He was the highest-ranking officer there, and his authority made any military force appear to be nothing at all. We must conclude here that Jesus arrested his captors before they ever were able to arrest him. That's a sure thing. Now, thirdly, in a quick point here in verses 8 to 11, And this leads into an application or two before I close. We observe the protection of Jesus over his own here. You know Peter, he's got to get his action in. He's got to show that he's brave. He's got to show his Lord, Lord, I've got to prove that I'm your man. And he had that short sword. It probably was more like a long dagger than a full-size sword. Peter pulls it out and strikes. John even names the man who was struck, Malchus. Luke tells us that Jesus healed Malchus's ear. He's the only gospel that tells us that. Surely Peter was swinging for the guy's head. He did not intend to take an ear. He intended to take a head. But Malchus ducked. But what's here? Just as he would spare his disciples from their sins and from eternal death by dying to give them life in heaven, Jesus is sparing them also here in a physical way so they could later testify, live, go forth, and become what the book of Acts calls them, witnesses of the resurrection, to testify to him and found his church. They had to escape. And here once again, they're surrounded by the best soldiers there are. How are these guys going to get away? Well, they got away because their good shepherd put his own life in between them and the threat and said, You can take me, but you can't take them. It wasn't a suggestion. It was the force of a command. Let them go. And every one of them escaped. Not one of them was detained that night. Jesus said, I'm not going to lose a single one. He said it in the previous chapter. I'm not going to lose one of all those the Father has given 
to me. What do we conclude from John 18 here today? We conclude that Jesus controlled all events pertaining to his errand from God. If you think he was a victim forced into a tragic death, think again. The great point of our text is to show you that he would pay any price, walk through any furnace of hell to accomplish what he was sent to do, and that was to die as the atonement for our sin. And he says it here. Although he doesn't mention the three times prayer, Father, is it possible? Father, is it possible? Verse 11 does speak of the cup, doesn't it? It says, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? His unconquerable will triumphed all the way through to the cross and resurrection. Matthew Henry, the great commentator on the English Bible, has a challenge here, and he challenges us to take the measure of whatever we might be suffering right now. Let me quote him. Matthew Henry said, Christ took this awesome cup of wrath and drank its dregs. Now, he said, by comparison, our cup of affliction, whatever that may be, is but a thimble full of trouble. It is never a Red Sea or an ocean. It is a thimble. And it also comes from the hand of the Heavenly Father, from the very one who has the Father's sovereign authority and mercy, who will do us no lasting hurt. It's almost 15 years. It will be in June. 15 years from a sad day in my life and that of many others who knew a great man of God in our nearby region, Pastor Jim Boyce of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. Jim, you probably have heard of him. Many of you knew him very well or knew his ministry well. Some of you even were members of 10th Presbyterian, knew him better than I did. It will be 15 years in June that Jim was taken home to heaven by the Lord. He had about two and a half months warning before he died that he had pancreatic cancer, irreversible. Twenty years before his death at age 61, Jim wrote in his commentaries on John. He was about 39, I think, when he wrote this, okay? His comment on this passage, and here's what Dr. Boyce wrote at age 39. It is always better, he said, to have any cup from God's hand, no matter what it contains, than anything else from the hand of another Why is that? He said, because of who God is. He is the all-powerful Lord of the universe who not only knows our greatest needs, but knows how exactly to bring it to pass. I read that in his commentary, knowing that he wrote it 20 years before a death at age 61 that we would have think was tragically soon. Taken from his wife, taken from his three daughters, taken from a ministry that was at the height of its influence. And I thought to myself, if I could somehow communicate with my friend Jim Boyce in heaven, which I can't, of course, and say, Jim, in light of the circumstance of your death occurring as it did, do you stand by what you said at age 39? It's always better to have any cup from God's hand because it's from him. Well, I can't hear his answer, but I know it. I know 
Jim would say, of course that's true. I will drink whatever cup the Lord appointed for me. You and I don't control or have advanced knowledge of what's going to happen to us in 2016. Most of you are pretty blasé about that. You think, well, yeah, I'll be sitting here in January 2017. Things will be about the same. Let me tell you, one year ago, on New Year's Eve, a man from our congregation was eating a New Year's Eve meal and choked on his food and died. Two weeks after that, January 15th of this past year, 2015, a dearly beloved deacon of this church was struck down by a hit-and-run driver in Lancaster City and died in a sad, we would say, tragic way. Do either of those men, Al or Chuck, either one of them know what was coming? We live in a world full of threats of every possible kind, not just the terrorists from ISIS. Threats of disease, threats of accident, threats of breakups of our dearest relationships, loss of jobs, financial. You know, you you can find if you want to read what they've got to say, those that are saying the stock market's going to hit the basement this year, just as you can find somebody else will say it's going to hit the heights. They don't know, and we don't know. But we do know the Lord and commander of the future. We do know the Lord Christ who holds all things in his hands, who remains entirely sovereign over life and death and suffering and what we call accidents and every kind of providential event. The Lord Jesus Christ knows exactly what trials, what sufferings, what disasters possibly He's going to permit to touch us this year. And we can be confident that every single difficulty and challenge to us is sovereignly sifted out by his good hands and will be permitted to touch us only in light of what can do us eternal good. That's the Savior from Gethsemane who came to the cross and resurrection. That's the Savior who's on heaven's throne right now. I promise. Our God and Father, help us to live in hope. Help us to live in reliance upon you. To take nothing for granted about our days as they unfold, but to trust you. To know that however evil might threaten and snarl in our society, however disappointing the day's news might be or our own circumstances, our own health, you are in control. Thank you, Lord, that we can rest in this. Help us to do that each day of 2016. For Jesus' sake, amen.